Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20 as we continue in these uncertain times, our series, The Certainty of the Savior, Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. Steve mentioned in his prayer Chris Tomlin's song, Good, Good Father. I posted earlier this morning on Facebook a rendition of that. There are six or seven African Americans sitting in a room uh, singing that song in beautiful uh, harmony. We indeed have a good, good father, as we'll see in this passage who was willing to send his son for us. Luke chapter 20, and beginning in verse 9, out of reverence and respect for God and his word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Jesus continues teaching in the temple, and we pick up in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to its tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him." But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance might be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is written that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray together. Father, once again, as we gather in Jesus' name, we pray that Jesus himself, by his word and spirit, would instruct our hearts And again, as we often pray, that these would not simply be truths that inform, but truths that transform us more into His image and likeness. And working in us, we pray, a greater trust and reliance upon You and a greater love for You. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we're actually in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And Luke records for us his crowning parable in this gospel. It's a parable that's somewhat a a parabolic play, if you will, in which Christ clearly demonstrates that he is the Christ, the one sent from the Father. You know, if you go to a Broadway show or to the Brooks Center or to the Peace Center in Greenville and see something like Les Mis you're often given a, a bulletin, you're, you're giving a program which tells you who plays what part in the play. And so before we begin diving into the parable itself, I want us to consider who plays what part. Each person plays a part in this parable for a reason. And so first we have the landowner of the vineyard, and the landowner represents God. Second, we have the vineyard itself, which represents Israel. 
throughout Israel's history, they were represented as a vineyard that God plucked up and planted, that he took from Egypt and planted in the promised land. Uh, Psalm 80, for example, says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. As a result, the grapevine became the national symbol for Israel, very much like the bald eagle is our national symbol, or the maple leaf is the national symbol of Canada. Not far from where Jesus was standing as he was giving this parable, 70 cubits high was a carved, ornamented grapevine. The leaves and the vine were made out of the purest gold, the clusters of grape out of the, the most precious jewels. And so it became the the national symbol from Israel, for Israel and as Israel. Third, we have the tenants who were left in charge to care for the vineyards. These were Israel's religious leaders that had been given the task to cultivate the people in grace so that they might produce the fruit of righteousness. Next, fourth, we have the three rejected servants who were sent by the landowner to check on the vineyard and to gather fruit from it. And these are the Old Testament prophets that God had sent again and again over the years. Listen to Jeremiah. You have neither listened to nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you his servants, the prophets. And finally, we have the landowner's son who was killed by the tenants. Does this character really need an introduction? This is the Son of God Himself. This is Jesus, sent by the Father and killed by those who opposed Him. Now, the cast has been introduced, so let's see what happens when we lift the curtain, if you will, to this divine drama. What is it that Jesus intended for us to learn from this parable? The first is that God's great love has been displayed in the sending of his son. The landowner didn't first send his son, as we see also in redemptive history. He, he first sent prophets. He first sent his people out of Egypt. And so what we see regarding God's love in this divine drama of redemptive history is we see and observe God's redeeming love. He called his people who were undeserving, who were just as stubborn at heart as many of the pagans. Nevertheless, he called them out of Egypt. He redeemed them as his own, and he planted them as a vineyard in the promised land, as Psalm 80 reminds us. Isaiah actually records for us the Father's love song for his vineyard. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out of wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Nevertheless, God's redeeming love runs throughout this parable of a God who loved an unlovely people drew them out of Egypt, and planted them in the promised land. Second, we see God's relentless love for his people in the sending of his servants. He sent them to collect the fruit in verses 10 through 12, and he did so again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, God had sent Israel prophet after prophet 
reminding them of their call to be faithful to him and to cultivate relationship with him that they might bear much fruit. But when the prophets arrived, they saw no fruit. They saw only bad fruit. And as a result of pointing this out, the people again and again beat them and killed them. Elijah was driven into the wilderness. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was ridiculed and harshly rejected. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was beheaded. People were not just lining up to become prophets in Israel. The risk was too high. The casualty rate was too high. Becky's uncle, Don Purvis, who married us 40 years ago, recently uh, recently passed away after pastoring for over 50 years, faithfully proclaiming the Word of God in the lower part of the state. Both of his sons have become pastors now, and at the funeral, the youngest son, Paul Stephen, was sharing that one time as he went on and took his first church, the first church was pretty rough on him. They, they beat him up pretty bad. And so he went to his father for advice, and his father looked at him and said, if you're going to remain in the ministry, you better develop a tougher skin. And so Paul Stephen said, I, I did what any young pastor would do, I went to my mom for advice. (laughs) If you're going to be faithful to the Word of God in your family environment and with extended family members, if you're going to be faithful to the Word of God at work among your co-workers, if you're going to be faithful to the Word of God at the university as a professor, as a student, If you're going to be faithful to the Word of God in in the community at all, uh, the people among whom you live, work, and play, you will face opposition. You will face difficulties because the world despises the Christ of the Word. Jesus reminded us of this. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. In fact, did you notice in this parable that the, the violence actually escalated, the rejection actually escalated? Did you notice what they did to these here? The first they beat and sent away. The second they beat, treated shamefully and sent away. And the third they beat, and they didn't simply send away, but in their beating they wounded him, probably indicating greater wounds than the first two, and they cast him out. There's opposition to the word of God and to the prophets who are faithful to that word experienced it. So will God's people today. Nevertheless, even though this was Israel's response to God's prophets, he sent them again and again, reminding them and reminding us of God's redeeming love, of his relentless love, and finally the Father demonstrated his radical love in the sending, not of another servant, but in the sending of his Son. You know, if you and I had been onlookers in this divine drama of redemption, we might have been tempted to shout out, don't do it. Don't send your son. Don't you realize what they've done to your servants again and again and again? Don't send him. Evidently, the father in this parable did not know what they would do to his son. But our heavenly father did. There's the wonder. There's the amazement of the gospel. The father knowing full well what we would do to his son sent him anyway on our behalf 
redeeming love, relentless love, radical love. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain to me, to him who death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The father in the parable did not know what they would do to his son. But our heavenly father did. And nevertheless, he sent his one and only son, whom he deeply and dearly loved for our sakes. But in giving this parable, Jesus didn't leave it there. He now asked the audience a question. After sending his son and his son being killed, what do you think the father should do? What do you suppose the father should do? And Jesus answers his own question. And in so doing, we realize that the rejection of God's son means judgment for Jerusalem, but blessing for the nations. Jesus said the owner will destroy those tenants. The unbelieving religious establishment in Israel will come to ruin. Jesus has already described this unimaginable judgment upon Jerusalem in chapter 19. We've seen it in weeks past. And that came to fulfillment in A.D. 70 when the Roman soldiers came in and they reduced this glorious city to a bloodied ruins and rubble. But Jesus said in that process... I will take from the religious leaders that this jewel, this treasure of a gospel of grace, I will take it from them and I will give it to others. And in so doing, Jesus is prophesying that that glories of the gospel will be taken from the religious leaders and given to Gentiles, given to his church, comprised of both believing Jews and Gentiles. And he would give it for the purpose of, that others would know. In other words, the blessings of God and the fruitfulness of the vineyard of His kingdom will be taken from the unbelieving religious establishment and giving it to the church, the new Israel of God. It's the very purpose for which God had sent His Son to begin with. Way back in Genesis, we, we see the reminder of why the Son would come. The covenant with Abraham the vision for the redeeming kingdom of our God. We read these words in Genesis 12. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will dishonor those who dishonor me. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what Jesus is promising here. That the glories of the gospel will be taken from the unbelieving religious establishment and given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new Israel of God. And as we abide now by faith in the vine, the true vine, which is Jesus, as we cultivate that relationship with him by faith through the means of grace, God's Spirit begins to produce in his people fruit, the fruit for which he was looking for earlier. The fruit of the Spirit, of a character that's been transformed by the grace of God and the gospel of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness during COVID, during the difficulties of life. When you're squeezed in the pressures of life, 
and you're abiding in the vine, what comes out is the new wine produced in us by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of evangelism that flows from God's people. This is the abundant harvest to the glory of the Father. Let me ask you this morning, are you abiding in the vine? Is your faith and trust personally riveted to, connected in the vine of Jesus? Is your life passion and desire to see that through Him and drawing upon His sustenance by faith, that what's produced in your relationships and what's produced in your life is fruit that bring much praise to our Father in heaven. To this you and I have been called as sons and daughters of the King, as members of the new vineyard of the Lord Jesus himself. You know, when we look at this parable, the story of the vineyard, one of the beauties and wonders of it is, is that the preservation of this vineyard, that the faithfulness of the vineyard is assured, but not by the tenants, not even by the prophets, but ultimately by the sending of the Father's Son. You see, Jesus is intent that his church, his vine, will bear much fruit to the Father's glory. Jesus is intent to hew out of humanity people from every language and tribe and nation who will know the Father and whose life desire, whose heart's passion will be to bring glory and honor and praise to him. And Jesus will do it. He's that intent. He's promised. In a discussion with Peter and the other disciples surrounding him, Jesus said this, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, that is on the basis of your testimony, Petros, Rocky, that I am the Christ, that I am the cornerstone, that I am the sure foundation, upon this testimony, I will build my church consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles and then this promise and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her it doesn't matter what you turn on and see on the television screen the gates of hell will not prevail against what Jesus is doing and the building of his church in fact, the church and the gospel of the kingdom is, will be taken from the unbelieving religious establishment, granted to Christ's church, and this is how Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now having seen what the Father did, the question is no longer, what should the Father do? But what will you do? What will I do? How will we respond to the sending of the Son? How we, will we build our lives upon this cornerstone, which is Christ himself? And that is directly where Jesus takes us next. Look again at verses 17 and 18 after the telling of this parable. But he looked directly at them. They're probably rather nervous now, looking at their feet, squirming in their seats, these unbelieving religious leaders. 
What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is Jesus teaching here? Rejection of God's Son means crushing judgment for those upon whom the stone falls, but salvation for those who fall upon the stone. This whole imagery of Christ being the cornerstone is a rich imagery that runs throughout Scripture. First, it begins with the image of a cornerstone that's taken literally from the quarry in the building of this grand temple. And the Jewish people had an idea of what their cornerstone was supposed to look like. And so when Jesus comes along, he doesn't fit their pattern. When Jesus doesn't fit their mold, what do they do? They look at him and they toss him aside and he lands right in the middle of the pathway. You can't get around him. But they toss him aside and they reject him and they continue to look for a more suitable cornerstone. Not realizing that everything that the temple represented was embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second, the people had just been singing and shouting from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus had entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, they were singing and they were shouting from Psalm 118. But had they forgotten that just four verses earlier in that same psalm that the psalmist penned, the stone that the builders rejected, had become the cornerstone. The very one that they were rejecting at this very moment was the cornerstone himself, was the Christ. Jesus was the son of the parable. He was the cornerstone of this reminder, and they tossed him aside. There's a third connection with this cornerstone in in Christ, and it's a Hebrew play on words. The word for son in Hebrew is ben, for stone is eben, just one letter difference. What's Jesus' point? He wants in our minds, in the minds of those gathered around him, to connect the stone and the sun. That if you reject the sun, Ben, the Eben, will fall upon you in judgment. And that judgment will be crushing, literally ground to powder, Jesus says. It'll be irrevocable. And it will be eternal. However, on the other hand, in the midst of the backdrop of Jesus' warning passage here is great, great hope for those who do not reject the Son, but who receive Him by faith and rest upon Him. Look again at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The conjunction and is probably better translated but. But, as the New American Standard translates it. In other words, the second part of that verse, being crushed, is not an addition to something. It's contrast to something. There's something going on here. When Jesus said, those who fall upon the stone will be broken to pieces, 
I do not think this is a warning of judgment, but rather of severe mercy. A Psalm 51 severe mercy. You remember when David penned those words, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had her husband Uriah killed, and he stood before the people for a year, and he played the hypocrite. He lied to the people as they together sang, it is well with my soul, and with David it was not. And so David begins that psalm crying out for God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, for the heinousness of my sin. And then he continued in that same psalm, for the sacrifices of God are a what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so what Jesus is saying here in essence is, if you fall upon me in repentance and faith, if you fall upon me over the brokenness of your sin, if you fall upon me over contrition of heart, then you will experience the full extent of my grace Mercy, love, and forgiveness. It is yours. And so we're reminded of the forgiveness, but, not and, but if you do not, you will be eternally and thoroughly crushed in judgment. And so Jesus is pleading with the crowd on his day and he's pleading with us, fall upon him in brokenness and contrition of heart. Fall upon him that you might know to the full extent his grace, mercy, and his love. You see, this judgment need not be. This is a loving plea of the Savior. The good news of the gospel is that the Father was willing to send his Son even when he knew what we would do to him. The Father was willing to send His Son to be crushed for us in our place. The Father was willing to send His Son as a satisfaction of divine wrath for our sins. Isaiah reminds us of this. Listen to the words again of Isaiah 53. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed he was crushed for our iniquities upon him did that stone fall <laughs> upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed and so for the father's call to us today is to fall upon his son in faith to rest our souls solely upon Him that we might not be crushed, that we might find our refuge and our hope and our salvation and our healing in the One who was crushed for us. Jesus' warning is if you do not fall in faith upon the stone for your salvation, this same stone will certainly fall upon you in judgment. And yet the sad irony of sending prophet after prophet and telling parable after parable. The very next verse in our text this morning is that the religious leaders nevertheless sought to kill the son. In blindness, in unbelief, in hardness of heart, 
The sun was sent. The sun was beat. The sun was wounded. He was cast out. And he was killed. But all for our salvation. I plead with you this morning. Many of you have heard the gospel again and again, as did Israel. And yet your heart may remain hardened to him. Jesus simply says, fall upon me in brokenness and in belief. And know the full extent of my grace and my mercy and love. Do not be like those of hardness of heart who to continue to reject the Son to their own peril. Believe in him. Build your life upon this cornerstone so that you can sing with us, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come, with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. All because upon that stone you cast yourself in faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and we give you praise for your willingness to come and to be crushed for those who deserve the crushing blow of judgment. And yet you took that judgment upon yourself that we might know the full extent of your grace and mercy and love. And Heavenly Father, thank you from the depths of our hearts that though you knew, unlike the man in the parable, though you knew what we would do to your Son, you sent him anyway so that through him we might fall upon him and know your mercy, your kindness, your forgiveness, your grace. Enable us now for those who do know you to continue to build our lives upon this cornerstone, the Lord Jesus himself, and that much fruit might be born in our lives as we cultivate our relationship with him and abide in that vine. May much fruit to the Father's glory be born in and through your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning before we sing the last verse of Cornerstone based upon this passage and several others, I'm going to give the benediction. And after the benediction, we will sing one verse. And then as you're leaving from the back, moving towards the front, the praise team will continue to sing the rest of that that wonderful hymn and chorus, Cornerstone. Let's stand and receive God's blessing from 1 Peter chapter 2, which takes this theme of Jesus himself being the foundation of our lives and our cornerstone. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never, ever be put to shame. Go in his strength and his power and his grace. Amen.